You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. How is everyone doing today? I hope you are good. It feels quite remarkable that we are almost at our 90th episode. I wanted to say thank you everyone for listening, subscribing, leaving a review, just generally joining in with the journey. Um, Can't wait to get to 100 and I'm uh, having a great time doing this. If you've not left us a review slash rating, you know I'd like you to, so please do that. On to today's show. Today we are joined by Diego Padilla Phillips who is Technical Director and Net Zero Decarbonisation Lead for WSP in the UK. Many of you, I'm sure, will know who WSP are. If you don't, they are one of the world's leading engineering professional services firm with 37,000 employees across 40 countries. So just a pretty small company then. Anyway, welcome to the show, Diego. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think since... Since then, the, the company has grown a bit more than that. Oh, really? Uh, so we are ev- we are even bigger than that. <laughs> we have presence in so many countries, so many regions, and, and 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 it's great to be joined by such a fantastic team of people. You know, especially now, all focused on carbon emissions and 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 doing things sustainably. Hundred percent. And we will get to that, Diego. We will get to that. But um, ever since I was a young man, ever since I was a child, probably. Peru was the number one place on the planet that I wanted to visit. Now, I know that you have got your own ties to Peru, and I don't want to make this show about travel, but we could turn it into a travel podcast if we like. (laughs) Uh, All jokes aside, tell everyone about who you are and and your story today. So, my name is Diego. I was born in Peru. I moved to the UK in 2009. I came to do a master's in seismic engineering and disaster management. Uh, as you can tell from the subject, the plan was to go back to a seismic zone, which which Peru is. Wow. <laughs> um, but I think I, I, I fell in love with the country. I do have English ancestry, so I was always tempted to come back. <laughs> and, and, and I love the, uh, the, the opportunities in, in, in the UK and, and the, the exposure to I mean, such a diverse culture was fantastic so yeah i've been here since then and i recently moved to brighton because i miss the sea a lot so yeah we we moved to brighton uh last year are you on the coast in peru are you is that were you by the sea in peru yes i spend most of my life by the sea so i always miss that but the i'm i'm imagining it would be the pacific ocean there versus the quite cold English Channel in Brighton. So it's a different seaside experience, is it? You'll be surprised. The Pacific Ocean along the coast of Peru is affected by this current that comes from Antarctica, which is actually really cold. So most of the year, the sea in front of Lima is colder than Brighton. So <laughs> you are the first person on the, on the planet, probably, to get into the sea in Brighton and say, cool, this is nice and warm, isn't it? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So you've got a really um, fascinating story. You're you're an engineer. You were in you, you studied seismic engineering. What specifically do you do now for WSP? 
So I joined WSB in 2014 and I joined the Toll Buildings team or group. And I've worked on Toll Buildings for uh, most of that time. Uh, I worked on, on, on high-rise residential buildings like Principal Tower in Shoreditch. But most of my career was taken by a big office building in the city called uh, 22 Bishopsgate. Uh, and for the last three years, I've been working on the decarbonization strategy because, as you know, buildings have a lot of materials that go into them, which represent to generate emissions. So the biggest impact that we can make as engineers is really decarbonizing those are designed. And that's what I've been doing for the last um, three years. Excellent. And what would be one common myth about being an engineer and doing what you do that you would like to dispel? All of us QSs, project managers, tell us, tell us what we're getting wrong <laughs> about you guys. Um, I think people tend to think that structural engineers limit the architect's creativity you know they say the architect dreams it and the engineer <laughs> brings in that's what we that's what the qs's do right <laughs> maybe we can be friends they think oh engineers are these unimportant things like gravity you know <laughs> or wind forces <laughs> <laughs> who cares for that <laughs> and, and it's not completely untrue but 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 we don't limit that creativity we we bring the science to make it work and and, and to find the best way to, to, to respond to the challenge and, and in the most sustainable way, in the most efficient way, we work, we really work together. And maybe the reason why I feel that way is because I know that I remember once someone asked me, tell us something about yourself that no one knows. And I said, well, no one knows that actually I wanted to be an architect before I became a structural oh, engineer. Really? <laughs> So, so yeah. So you can be friends, architects and engineers. Uh, some of my best friends are architects. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So today's episode, we're going to talk about tall buildings. Given your experience, we're going to talk about decarbonisation as well, for obvious reasons. When we first met, we met, and if you're in the UK, we'll hark back a few months to the incredible heatwave that we had in July, and the two of us were sat in our respective houses having a quick chat and organizing this conversation now given you have been in the uk since i think you said 2009 and therefore you lived quite a long time in a different country and have a completely different perspective on housing and i guess housing stock i'm just interested really given the challenges that we have around a lack of there's a shortage of houses here in the uk first and foremost but also uninsulated housing, et cetera, et cetera. What is your honest opinion of the UK's housing stock? Wow. Um, I've shocked an engineer. I'm happy with this. <laughs> I think it depends on how I compare it and who, what I compare it to. Just to give you some context, in Peru, we have different climates. We've got the coast, the Andes, and the Amazon. They all have different temperatures. Where I'm from, Lima has a... a uh, weather that is very similar to London. A little bit hotter in the summer and a little bit also warmer in the winter, but it's humid. But houses do not have any insulation. You just have the structure and you plaster it, paint it, and you get used to that. But because the, the difference in temperatures between the summer and the winter is not that great, it doesn't affect that as much. When I, comp when I moved to the UK, I felt, well, this is great. I have insulation. I'm protected from the outside in the winter. I'm protected from the noise as well. So it was a massive step up and it was a great, gave me this great appreciation. Then if I compare 
houses in the UK against other houses in, in, in say, uh, Scandinavia or even in Europe, in Central Europe, there is a difference as well. But it's also because they respond to a different weather, different conditions. What do I really think about the housing stock in the UK? Well, maybe it was adequate for climate conditions until a few, a couple of decades ago. But with the weather changing so much, it is no longer adequate. We have to really invest uh, in, in, in insulating our houses, in protecting our, our, our houses from, from the elements, in preparing for how the climate is changing. And it's a massive effort. And, and you walk around the cities and you see all these beautiful houses with single glazed windows and you think, whoa, there's something that we really need to do there. I am in one. I am in, if me, I am in a single, my girlfriend, is Italian and she is always complaining about the weather and she is even <laughs> complaining even more about the single glazed window. She cannot let it go. But okay, that's a really good assessment of like your different perspectives. But in short, there's a long way for us to go to A, bridge the gap in terms of the shortage we have, but actually to improve a lot of the housing stock that we've got. And we're, we're going to go into this winter feeling some of the pain of that a lot of us are. So particularly me with my single glazing and Italian girlfriend. So, <laughs> on to the show. I'm going to get there eventually, but it's interesting. You're an interesting person to speak to about these things. My experience for five or six years in my career was working on tall buildings. So, I worked for uh, Permis Delisa, very large subcontractor, building envelope subcontractor, who actually I know were on 22 Bishopsgate as, as as a group. So the project that you were on, they were on. It wasn't a job that I was involved in, but kind of at the tail end of my time there, I, I knew about that project. I had colleagues who were working on it, and it looks like a fantastic job. Talk to us about, um, and by the way, anyone listening, go and have a look at 22 Bishopsgate. Pretty awesome finished uh, project. I think it's open now. Uh, is that it right? Is. Yeah. It is. Excellent. Yeah. There will be a public viewing gallery at level 58. Will uh, there be a bar? Be- uh, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> well, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. But check check out 22 Bishopsgate. It looks great. Talk to us about your experience on that project, its challenges, and how you navigated them. 22 Bishopsgate was possibly what defined my, my career as an engineer. I, I remember I was, I know, I was sitting, it was Christmas, Christmas 2014, and we were just about to go home. It was like 5 p.m. And then our boss said, by the way, can you help me with this? I think it was the 21st of December. Can you help me with this? We really need to, we need to get these loads, you know, some arrows on a drawing, bring them to these existing foundations. And I thought, All right, this sounds like an easy thing to do. And we were looking at it. And I thought there was an error on the on the you know the loads the numbers because they felt too big i had to actually go back and check how many mega newtons what mega newtons <laughs> not kilo and then we realized this has to be big this is at least 50 or 60 stories this is big uh, and then we understood where it was and what the challenges were and then it just became everything in in in, in our lives it was an existing building it was an existing basement uh, from it a, was from the a, pinnacle, wasn't it, it, to start with? I, when I, know. I first moved to London, I remember it being, I'm going to call it a stump for, for what, three, four years? Because it changed hands, didn't it? And I mean, they had challenges behind them in its, its construction. So, so eventually it, 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 it didn't carry on. Uh, so our client bought the site and then decided to create something greater, something bigger, and something that I think 
responded maybe in a more honest way to the um, the current, you know, post-recession situation. The the pinnacle was a beautiful design. I really liked it, but maybe it was a bit more challenging to build. I don't know. Uh, the oh, years. you sound like you sound like an engineer <laughs> trying to uh, ruin an architect's dream now. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean. I mean, 22 Bishop's Gate is, is, is a lot more straightforward. It's, it's, it's a more efficient use of space. And, and maybe that is uh, the, the way in which, as a, as a, as a city, as a city it's responding. It's architecturally very nice, isn't it? It's Still, beautiful. I mean, Absolutely. both of them are. It's interesting. It's, it's something that I, my office was on Fenchurch Street for five years. I was walking past it all the time. And my old company were, due to do the pinnacle, did 22 Bishop's Gate. So it's a, it's a project story which I know quite well. And for anyone who doesn't, check out the Pinnacle, what it was, then check out 22 Bishopsgate, because they are amazing buildings or concepts. Absolutely. Both, both of them are really, really nice buildings. But, and, and, and maybe I am biased towards 22 Bishopsgate because I grew up with it. <laughs> Rightly so. <laughs> um, but it was a real challenge because you, you, you already had an existing basement and an existing foundation for another building. And you might think, well, you have the shoes for it. And you think, okay, you had shoes, but they were not for the same size of feet. <laughs> so we had to adapt those shoes, but keep as much as possible of them and use them in a different way and, and bring in those so that in a way that it wasn't that obvious. So all the, all the transferring of the structure of the mega forces, I mean, the force under one of these columns is the equivalent of the weight of five double-decker, not buses, planes, you know, the A380, five of them full of people. That's how that much That is such an engineer, engineer's <laughs> bit of knowledge, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's your reference point. <laughs> it brings it back to reality. It makes you see how, how heavy it is. I also know it in African elephants, but that's a bit more difficult to picture. <laughs> <laughs> so all of those forces are coming at different locations where they used to come. And we had to transfer them in a smooth way without demolishing much of what we had. So it was a real challenge. And then building a, a structure that is 300 meters tall, almost, with all the complexities of working next to other buildings and challenging neighbors and the aerospace limit above you, it was a fantastic thing to, to be involved in. Yeah, I, yeah. absolutely. I, I, one, one thing that I want to touch on that you said, which really resonated with me was you said 22 Bishopsgate was a project that defined my career and for me the project it's round the corner 20 Fenchurch Street the walkie-talkie that was a project that I did it was a project that I moved down to London dreaming of working on that project was fortunate enough to work on that project and I view that as a project that kind of defined my career and I know that people listening this is the the joy of construction it's a tough industry a lot of the time but there will be people thinking now listening oh yeah that's the project that defined my career because it, it, it's kind of how it works isn't it it's, we get so attached to these projects that we do and we deliver them so I, that really resonated with me for me I that was talk. also like, like like a dream come true because my father is also a civil engineer so i i grew up with him driving around the country and saying oh i built that i did that bridge and then i thought you know what i want to feel that way one day and then i moved to london and i thought this is a place for me. And then 
10 years later, I can walk across the, the well, I mean, Waterloo Bridge and I can point at 22 Bishops Gate and see, wow, I built, I, I worked on that building. And every and, time there's the TV show with the skyline of London <laughs> on it, bang, there you go. That's exactly what I do as well. It's, it, it, it's, it's a great feeling. And we've talked about it on yeah. the show before that as a person in construction, there are tough days and times. It's not easy day in, day out. But that is the one real joy it was to me at least is that you know go around the country go around cities and say did that job did that job and you kind of really make an imprint on it particularly when they're such spectacular projects as 22 bishopsgate i feel like we are this episode is running away from me because i could talk to you for such a long time what i want to talk to you about after the break is kind of like the future of the skyscraper um and then kind of net zero and how all of that comes together but we'll do that right after this break Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded Sealink with my best mate, Chris. Chris and I, we're both QSs, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. We've already established, Diego, that I am someone like you who has a uh, bit of a passion and experience in tall buildings. What I want to talk to you about is kind of the future now and the skyscraper of the future. I've seen lots of like really interesting things recently not always around like the structural side of things but you know i've seen skyscrapers with like aquaponics biodiversity all kinds of things built into them that will help us address kind of the climate challenge that we have ahead and kind of really build the population upwards as opposed to um, suburbia as we have done before i'm interested to know you're a person heavily involved in tall buildings i no longer am how do you see the skyscraper of the future I think that is such an interesting question because cities have changed so much. Someone asked me once, if knowing everything that we know now, if you know all the technology that we have and all the knowledge that we've developed, if we had the opportunity to create materials such as concrete or steel, would we create the same thing? And I think the answer is, is no. I mean, those materials evolved in a certain way, in a certain time, and they were appropriate because of that. Just like our cities changed in that way, you know, medieval cities, narrow streets, then the car, etc. all of that, it all has a reason. But if knowing everything we know, we had the opportunity to do it again, would we do the same? And I think the answer is absolutely no. So building the future might be completely different. However, we, we are constrained to what we have at the moment, which is a street layout, for example, uh, that, that determines the size of your site. We're constrained to lifting 
equipment and technologies. We're con constrained to concrete pumping equipment and crane sizes. We're constrained to the strength of the materials. We're constrained to all of these things that will limit uh, how buildings can be really different. But also you mentioned something about density and is the tall building really the right density for a city? Or is there something like a gentle density that really works gentle better density. in terms of use of resources? Talk to me about gentle density. Yeah, so no, no high density or low density. Something in the middle, you know, that sweet spot that uses the resources in a, in a better way. Because we know, yes, tall buildings use less resource, less infrastructure, because they bring more people into one place. But they, they, they are also a bit heavier when it comes to carbon emissions or other resources. Whereas low density uses much more infrastructure much more roads and, and, and cables and bridges, but they use less carbon intensity in other aspects. So there has to be some sweet spot. Anyway, so I think buildings have to respond to that, but also the construction industry hasn't changed much. I mean, we still use concrete. The Romans use concrete. <laughs> <laughs> we still use steel, uh, and that hasn't changed much either. And it's a slow process. That and it's, it's a very slow industry to change. It's more likely that things like facades will adapt first with adaptable buildings that have facades that automatically change not just the, the intensity of light that gets through, but also the solar shading. They automatically have, and it happens already in the Middle East, these buildings that cover themselves when it's too sunny. You're talking my um, language. I know facades, don't I? I'm <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think facades are the most incredible thing. It's like your skin, isn't it? It's, it's what it's exposed to all the elements. So we need to protect it and, and make sure it adapts. I think buildings will be self-sufficient. Will, they will use all of their resources and recycle everything, the water, etc. I also think that buildings will be connected at different levels. But then again, all of that, that that's not necessarily uh, structures. When it comes to structures, I think what's going to happen is at first, the building will have to be assessed in a multidisciplinary way, thinking about structures, the building performance, the facade performance, and, and, and all of the aspects using tools that really allow you to, to combine those objectives into one. Because if you think about embodied carbon, the building, if you want to optimize a building, focus on embodied carbon, it will, it will give you a certain shape. If you think about operational carbon, it will give you a different shape. And if you think about facade and daylight, it will give you a different shape that, are, that compete against each other. So buildings will be assessed from the beginning, holistically, at a really early stage. Buildings will need to focus on stronger and lighter materials, so they can go, if they need to, taller, but also be lighter, so it require less interventions. But I think from a structural point of view, they will try to be more organic. And I know that there's limitations. And we see that, for example, in the US, we have the super skinny buildings. And the reason why they're super skinny is because the site is so small. Not um, because they've purposefully thought we want to reduce the embodied carbon. <laughs> well, the super skinny buildings... Uh, it's like one Central Park or something that... There's that really skinny one, isn't there? Hundred, yeah, yeah, 100, uh, 111th... Um, 57th Street, yeah. I think it is, yes, okay. uh, or 432 Park Avenue as well. They're super skinny because the sites are small. So it's a response to a site. But buildings, if we had more freedom around the site, could respond to, to the materials or could respond to geometry or could become more organic. What um, do you mean? They would try to follow, you know, the stress lines, which are not vertical or horizontal. I they wish are... this was being recorded as a video because the <laughs> amount of hand movements and gesticulation is really helping me paint the picture here. 
or, or even it will follow it will follow shapes which are inherently more stable, such as a triangle, a pyramid. Say that we didn't have the constraints of a street layout and we had to reinvent a city, we could look at triangular, like pyramid-like cities. And, and, and the, the only challenge is how do you get light into the floor depth? Well, you remove that constraint by creating light wells and making a volume that is a bit more more like a beehive, you know, with openings, etc. So what we see in, 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 in films, you know, sci-fi movies or the cities of the future, I, don't, I, I think they're not that disconnected from what it could be if we got rid of some of the constraints that we have. And that is, I mean, if you talk about on a street level, there is a lot of talk around how the streets of the future will look with a lot less cars and make pedestrianising it, right? So there is potentially scope for doing that. It's always, it's interesting to try and, and it's an impossible question to answer in some ways, how do you see the, the future, isn't it? But I'm always fascinated to think about it, particularly in the context of these mega buildings, if you like, and how there's there's budget and there's desire to kind of innovate you know we talked about how nice the pinnacles design was how nice 22 bishopsgate is there is that kind of scope and the team around it to make it happen but with regards to embodied carbon again something that we've talked about on this show something that you've just touched on there when it comes to the demolition of buildings you talked actually about the fact that i know it was only three or four stories up the pinnacle but that you kind of worked from that there is a lot of debate about demolition of buildings at the moment. There's that one particular project, I think it's M&S um, on Oxford Street, where there's been a to and fro, hasn't there, about whether or not to demolish the building and start again, the original concept, or whether there's a lot of embodied carbon already in that building, whether really the alternative should be to stick with the existing structure. What do you think we should take from the story of that particular project, if you if you know it, we'll be smiling and smirking. <laughs> it's it's a tough question because there is no straight answer. There's no one right answer. Every project needs to be assessed individually and and really understood from a not just from a carbon perspective because sustainability is much more than only carbon. However, having said that, those carbon em- emissions that happen now what we call upfront carbon, which is everything that is created until practical completion. Those are the ones which currently are related to carbon-intensive manufacturing processes for concrete or steel. In 10 or 20 years' time, as this industry decarbonizes, the same process will generate less emissions. So if we were building the same building in 20 or 30 years, it will have much less carbon emissions. But, But we're doing it right now. So... Those emissions are the ones driving <clears throat> the climate emergency. It is that carbon that we cannot see, that is in the atmosphere. If we could see carbon, it might be different. You see, if we could, if we could see, see this, it would be horrifying. It would be useful in many ways, <laughs> wouldn't it? If we could see it, yeah. And we will look at ways of not seeing it and reducing it. But be- because we cannot see it, it feels alien. But it's, it is those emissions, the ones that we need to focus on reducing. Now, in my opinion. The best way to do that is by doing less. As a society, we just use too much of everything, too much food, too much driving, too much flying, too much clothes, too much of everything. And that includes our buildings, too much energy and too much building. I know it's not paradoxical because we need to build more houses, but 
we need to do those, build that in, in an efficient way so that we use less materials. Now, keeping an existing building is a fantastic way of using less. And if we use less, we generate less emissions and we generate less of those emissions driving the climate emergency right now. Can I ask you then, your net zero lead in the UK for WSP, when clients are approaching you, are you trying to advise them to avoid that upfront carbon? Is that the, you know, the upfront carbon being all the carbon emissions before PC or reduce the carbon, let's say? Is that kind of your initial output? Like how, how does it, how are you advising people? We help our clients to deliver the best possible outcome for their projects. And that is financially, environmentally, socially, all of these values that they bring and that we bring. And most, most of the time, their values and our values are aligned. So we're working towards the same objectives, sustainable buildings, etc. So we advise always to do things in a better way. And if that means reducing up from carbon, because those are the emissions driving the climate emergency, yes, that is the advice that we give them. And we help work with them to find the best solution for the projects. In some cases, demolition might be the only option, but we'll have to assess that. And it might be the only option because it, it, it enables something that wasn't there before. Of course, yeah, and which is longer term better. I guess my question, that and that makes perfect sense, and I realise the individual context of each site. I guess my question being, is upfront carbon now a metric for big clients at the outset where they're actually saying, wow, I didn't realise we were going to be expending that much upfront carbon? At, like, are you looking at it as a whole life? Are you looking at it as upfront? And are you actively engaged as a client team as a project team in saying we've got to reduce that and it's a wholehearted focus and the straight answer is yes we are and so are they our clients also have at the top of the agendas upfront carbon for because of the climate emergency but also because they know that the the market in the future will look at your environmental credentials and you won't be able to sell the house or rent the office unless you had thought about embodied carbon from the beginning. Do you think that's really true? I think it is. I mean, I mean, we've all chosen to fly less, eat less meat, do less. We look at... Not all of us, but <laughs> most, <laughs> some of us. <laughs> um, banks are providing green mortgages. Companies have strong ESG targets, which, which require a certain performance from the building. I think it is going in that direction. Absolutely. Well, that's... Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's positive, isn't it? Because... I'm only going to go back 10 years to my experience and at times it felt like the sustainability conversation on a project was much more nice to have. I'm not going to say lip service because I don't think that's fair, but more of a nice to have. And if things got tough, it would potentially be the first thing that was value engineered out of a project or looked at a project, different elements that could be tweaked and updated. But that now is not the case, is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the opposite. I'm seeing that clients, the first item in the agenda and the, the actual agenda of the meeting is sustainability. We have brought sustainability to the front of our reports in every in, in a structural engineering report. The, the, chapter two is sustainability and embodied carbon. We see that 
the the conversation around carbon emissions is is really really powerful and we have projects where the most important uh, design criteria is carbon emissions in body carbon have you got some cool you know projects or features of projects that you can share with us that you're working on at the moment <laughs> we're working on 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 large housing projects in 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 London in south and southeast London we're working on offices in 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 the city we're working on some projects that reuse and and build around and above listed buildings uh we're working on projects now where the structure is now doing more than just being the structure there's a museum in the middle east that it's also being the facade and the insulation is trying to use more than one the same material for more than one thing we're reusing we're looking at buildings we're looking at we, we've created a, a objective optimization tool that does embodied carbon operational carbon and daylight factors and combines us at the same time and then we're also looking we, we've got this uh, script that takes an existing building steel building or a, or a list of steel sections and then looks at your design and then optimizes your design based on what you already have so that you don't have to create new steel sections and that is, you know, uh, the reuse market is growing massively. So circular economy and all, all of these things that are feeding into like a lower carbon longer term. It's really interesting, isn't it, actually? And it strikes me that you're, I'm not always that optimistic when I come away from these conversations <laughs> uh, with, with various people. And there's certain reasons for that. But is, are you optimistic? I am optimistic most of the time because i understand we are in a transition stage some clients are not there yet in different regions they're going at different speeds i i, I also chair the global net zero group for st building structures uh so we have different we're a different you are a busy man <laughs> i had a i had my meeting yesterday it was at 7 a.m to catch people in new zealand and 7 p.m to catch people in san francisco <laughs> so we have, <laughs> i see that it's happening at different paces in different parts of the world uh, but i am optimistic that it is going in that direction and i see more and more people being being interested in in, in the subject but i am also realistic i know that the transition may take a bit longer than we think it might take a bit longer to come to, to to bring some clients with us uh the market might take a bit longer but also i think that the the effects of the climate emergency and climate change will be more and more noticeable we will feel them more every year so our build our, our focus cannot only be on mitigating they also it also has to be on adapting we need to start building cities to respond to high sea level sea level rises and temperatures etc because it is going to happen completely new climate it is going to happen yeah. kind of as going back to our first conversation when it was 38 degrees in london that is a new experience full stop isn't it um and we are going to be seeing more and more of that what i am optimistic about talking to you uh, Diego, is not only that, that we've got amazing people in the industry like yourself looking at it and championing this, which which does make me feel optimistic, but also if I just reflect on what you've just said about chapter two of your reports with your clients and your meetings with your clients is sustainability. It is right at the top of the conversation, whereas if I go back five, ten years, it just wasn't the case Which I, when I was involved on similar-ish projects. So really, really great to see that. And 
as always, I feel like I could sit here and talk to my guest for another hour <laughs> or two, but unfortunately, we are at the end of the show. Diego, um, there's many more things I would love to have said to you. Perhaps we'll get you back on the show at some point, but thank you so much for coming on, and um, it was my pleasure to have you here. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, please please call me again. I would love to, and it, it's been fantastic. Thank you for the, uh, the opportunity. It was, it was great. All my pleasure. And I will leave Diego's and WSP's details in the episode description if you want to reach out to Diego. And I will speak to everyone, as always, next Monday morning. Have a good week. Cheers. Cheers.